Hey there, my fellow intellectuals. Welcome to episode two of Highly Variable. I'm your host, Kyle Kepisaris. And before I get into anything today, I just want to say thank you to everybody who gave me feedback on my first episode that I created and I uploaded a few days ago. It was generally positively received. There were a lot of kind words said to me about the podcast, and I'm very grateful that you took the time to listen and give me your feedback. So thank you if you're one of those people. Now, I do have quite a few things to talk about today. If you're watching on YouTube, you see that I have this piece of paper with a few things written down on it in terms of an agenda, essentially, so I don't forget to mention a few things. Uh, one of the first things I'm going to talk to you about today is my injury and the recovery process. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, I sustained a pretty bad injury last year around this time. It was specifically on July 5th, 2018, when I injured myself playing basketball and then re-injured myself a few weeks later, effectively tearing off a piece of cartilage in my left knee. And yesterday for me was a big day because it was the first day since that initial injury that I jogged under my own power, where I was able to just jog about 30 feet uh, there and back multiple times in front of my physical therapist. And it was just a really emotional jog for me because I hadn't done a jog in over a year. And it just showed how far I'd come in the recovery process and that my body is really recovering and almost fully back to where it was before the injury. So just really big deal for me. I I know not everyone knew that I knew that I was injured, but I had to get surgery for it in last August. So, you know, it, it was it was quite a journey to get to that point to be able to jog yesterday. And it just meant a lot to me to get to this point. So I'm really grateful that I had a lot of support from my friends and my family during this time. It was not easy being on two crutches, then moving to a crutch, moving to a cane, and then finally getting off the cane and just walking. But, you know, walking with a limp and then having to just build up strength again in that leg to have the power to jog again. And it's amazing to me because the time it took for me to jog from the moment I was able to walk without a cane was longer than the time it took from to go from the initial injury to just walking again. And I didn't realize how long of a process that was going to be to learn how to run. I knew it wasn't going to be easy, but to think that the running part or the jogging part would take that long from the moment I was able to walk, I had no idea. So just never underestimate the power of physical therapy and the amount of work you have to put in to get back to 100% because you really need to be proactive in your, your, your health and your recovery when you're injured. So if anyone's had an injury that lasted over a month, like mine's lasted over a year now, but if you've ever had an injury that's lasted that long, you probably know that it takes quite a while to sort of reacclimate back to what you're able to do. So yeah, I'm really happy about that. I am just kind of looking forward to the future. I'm optimistic about what I can do next week at physical therapy and the week after that. I think I'm probably going to stop physical therapy next month because it'll be about a year. And I will think, well, I hopefully I will think I'm going to be good to go for the rest of my life. 
I guess, until maybe old age. But yeah, that's my outlook on that. So thank you for you know listening if you if you cared about that part of my life. So um, yeah, I'm sorry. It's it just has really affected me, and I've been thinking about that quite some time. I just didn't really know how to get that out. So now it's out. Now we can actually enjoy the podcast, right? So now you've heard the sob story. And now we can talk about positive things. Or actually, next thing, since this is related to sports, especially basketball, this is something requested by a friend of mine to uh, give my opinion on Kevin Durant leaving the Warriors, right? So those of you who aren't NBA basketball fans, you may not know that Kevin Durant, probably the best player in the league besides LeBron James when he's absolutely healthy, got... Uh, not traded, but he left to the Brooklyn Nets as a free agent for four years, and I think $164-65 million. And that was about $50 million less than what he could have earned if he stayed with the Golden State Warriors. So he left us actually while being injured. So he injured himself in the NBA Finals against the Toronto Raptors in Game 5, tore his Achilles, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and is now going to, you know, earn a lot of money while injured, while he's recovering. And he left the Warriors. He left us a bit high and dry because Clay Thompson got hurt as well, tore his ACL, I believe, in Game 6 of the NBA Finals. And now we're a team that looks just like a shadow of its former self. And a lot of people wanted to know, you know, what do I think about Kevin Durant leaving? And the one thing I can say is that I'm not mad i don't have any animosity towards kevin durant he can do what he wants he was a free agent i personally didn't even think he was going to stay the rest of his career in golden state i thought it was going to be a nice three to five year span i was hoping it would be a bit longer than three years which is what it was so he left he well he came to the golden state warriors in july of 2016 and then he left july 2019 so it was three years that was a great three years i don't think any warriors fan can deny that repeating that was the first repeat in Golden State Warriors history, if I'm not mistaken. I'm pretty sure that is because I think we won in 1975, and then we won in 2015, and then we won in 2017 and 2018. So I think I'm missing one championship, though, actually. I have to, I have to count. But anyways, that was the first time we, we repeated as champions in our team's history. So to have Kevin Durant during that time while he was pretty much the focal point of the offense, right? He was the MVP of the finals those two years when we beat Cleveland and LeBron James in those two finals. So I can't really hate on him for what he's done for the Warriors. I, I'm sad that he's gone. I'm sad that our team is no longer going to be on top of the mountain for a little bit because he's left and DeMarcus Cousins left and we lost Egadala, we lost Sean Livingston. The whole team is just... So different now, especially now that Clay Thompson's hurt. The only people really returning are Stephen Curry, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, and Kevon Looney. Those are only four people I can really think of who are coming back for next season. We reacquired, not reacquired, sorry, we acquired D'Angelo Russell in that deal with the Nets. So we got D'Angelo Russell, who was an all-star last year in the Eastern Conference. And I think he'll be interesting as a warrior. I don't think we'll keep him, to be honest, because what are you going to do once Clay Thompson comes back? I mean, he does give us more offense, but he plays the same position essentially of Clay, of uh, you know, of Clay and Steph. So, 
I don't really see how he's going to fit when Clay is back. While he's while Clay's gone, you know, he's perfect. He'll be the second offensive option, take some of the pressure off of Stephen Curry. But when Clay Thompson is back, what are we going to do? We're not going to slide Clay to the three. I think that's not a great idea. Clay's not a natural three at all. He's definitely a two guard, in my opinion. So I don't know. I think we'll probably have to think about trading D'Angelo Russell for some more complimentary bench pieces to complement Clay, Steph, and Draymond when they're all healthy. Because I think those core three are going to be the driving force for the foreseeable future until, of course, you know, this run comes to an end. Well, maybe the run's already over and I don't know it, but, you know, as long as Steph Curry is healthy and is an MVP caliber kind of player, I think we'll always be a playoff team, possibly a, a title team. And we were before Kevin Durant came. So I think as long as we resign or, you know, just sign good players that can complement our three core players, then I think we'll be okay. So Dub Nation, don't worry. It's 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 a scary period because it's changing, but I think that this change will be for the better and we'll get to see some exciting Warriors basketball in the new stadium in San Francisco. Shout out to San Francisco, my hometown. I'm so excited to get a stadium in San Francisco for basketball. That won't be too far from the Giants ballpark either. So, so much sports in San Francisco. It's going to be great. So I think that is pretty much my feelings on the Kevin Durant scenario. I'm, you know, I'm wishing him the best of luck with the Brooklyn Nets. They've never won anything to my knowledge. I think they came close to winning a championship back in the early 2000s with Jason Kidd at the focal point, but that never really panned out to anything. So good luck to them. Good luck to him playing with Kyrie Irving. I mean, geez, if he couldn't really get along with Russell Westbrook, I can't really see Kyrie Irving as being a major upgrade, to be honest. I mean, Kyrie Irving is a better shooter than Russell Westbrook for sure, but in terms of passing the ball, I don't know. I mean, maybe Kyrie learned his lesson, but something tells me... That won't be the case. I mean, Kyrie couldn't really do it with LeBron James, so I don't know if it will work with Kevin Durant. I don't know. We'll have to see. Maybe they'll both change and adapt. But we won't be able to see that until at least 2021, I think, or maybe the, the tail end of 2020. So with that, that's all I have for the sports side of things of this podcast. I'm going to start talking about graduate school right now. And... Specifically, I'm going to talk a little bit about my second year in graduate school, which was a really weird experience, particularly because I got injured and I had to spend my whole second year as a graduate student injured. And I have to say, I didn't really think about this that much until right about now, but thank goodness my advisor had funding to support me through my second year because I can't imagine having to TA while being on two crutches or even one crutch because that would have been awful. I TA'd my first year in graduate school. I TA'd like the introductory physics classes for both engineers and science majors, and then also for bio majors slash pre-med majors. And those boxes, I don't know if you've seen my skit video about being a TA in graduate school, but if you see in that video, there's a box I'm carrying with just a bunch of papers, graded papers in that box. And it weighs like over 10 pounds easily maybe even like closer to 20 pounds. And having to lug that thing across campus sucks when you're healthy. Now, imagine trying to lug that thing while you have one working leg. 
I don't think I could have done it. I mean, I think they'll probably would have, you know, the school probably would have given me an appointment where I wouldn't have to do that, but it would have been more trouble than it would have been worth. So just super thankful my advisor had the money for me to pay for me to just do research and not have to TA because if I had a TA while being hobbled like that, it just, it just wouldn't have been fun. Not saying it was fun being injured at all during my second year, but it would have been just the least amount of fun. That would have minimized my fun. If my fun was a function of my TA appointment, that would have minimized my funness. Okay, so the mathematically inclined people, imagine my fun, right, as a function of TA ship, where if TA ship equals zero, that maximizes fun, right? So it is a critical point of maximizing fun. But if I had a TA ship, especially a lower division TA ship where I had to teach a class of like a couple hundred students, that is a minimizer of fun, right? So you have to be careful because you also have a, you have a maximum and you have a minimum. And therefore you, you can't just use the first derivative. You have to use the second derivative. You have to use concavity to understand which is the better option because maximizing the funness or sorry, minimizing the funness is counterintuitive, of course. You want to you want to optimize this function, but to find the optimal point, you have to be careful because taking the first derivative only finds you a critical point. It doesn't tell you if it's a maximum or a minima. You have to do more searching with the second derivative. And now that I've reiterated first semester calculus to everyone who hated that class, I'm gonna stop. I just sort of had that analogy in my head and I was gonna run with it. And I ran with it and I took it to a place that most people are like, oh God, please stop. Don't talk about calculus. I hated that class. It didn't make sense to me. Why did Newton have to do this to us, right? You know, I, I think about that stuff too sometimes, but it's with a little bit a little bit of uh, more advanced classes I've taken in physics. That's kind of how I feel like, dang it, Laplace. Dang it, Schrodinger. Dang it, Einstein. How dare you plague my life with these tensors and these squiggly letters and all this Greek. I didn't I didn't sign up to learn Greek in graduate school or doing a physics major, right? I, I signed up to do physics to do physics, not to learn Greek. Now I know so much Greek. It's so funny. Like every time somebody from a frat or a sorority at school, I hear them say, oh, rush, rush this, rush that, phi omega delta, 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 delta gamma, sigma chi, you know, all of those. If you're in a frat, just tell me what your frat is, and I, I will just see, all I see when I when people talk about their frat is I just see the Greek letters. I just see the Greek letters, right? If you say, uh, for example, sigma chi, right? Sigma chi, what do I see? I see a summation and I see chi, which is defined to be the residual divided by the uncertainty in a noise measurement. If you know what I said, I applaud you, but that's all I see. Let's try another one, right? Uh, delta gamma. Delta signifies a change most of the time when I'm dealing with it in physics. And gamma in the literature that I'm reading is the position angle of a galaxy on the sky oriented so that north is up and east is 90 degrees to the left. And if you understood that, Again, props to you. But whenever I think of delta gamma, I think of changing position angle. So if I'm excited when you say, oh yeah, rush my frat, bro. It's delta, delta, delta. I'm just like, yeah, dude, change cube. That's awesome, man. 
And then the dad's like, no, man, that's that's not what I'm saying. You should rush my friend. I think Delta 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 is actually a, a sorority. Yeah, it's a sorority. It's definitely a sorority. So <laughs> sorry, Delta 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 members. I totally didn't realize that you were a sorority, not a fraternity. My bad. You could obviously tell I was not in Greek life. But I'm in Greek life in spirit because I'm a physics graduate student. So there's just no shortage of Greek in my life. Okay, so apart from that highly variableness right there, what was I going to say? I was going to say uh, something about research. I probably should have written this down. And guess what? I did write it down. So, ha, you thought I forgot. I didn't. So how's research been this summer? Well, research has been up and down, as research is. For those of you who know what that research life is like, I'm currently in the process of trying to measure the masses of these two black holes in these separate galaxies, and that's been a bit of a challenge. Essentially, I spent the past year writing this Python code to optimize a search for the best fitting black hole mass to this galaxy. So essentially, we have these observations, this this data we've we've taken from Alma. Uh, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array in Chile, and we're trying to model the observations that we see, and we try and find the black hole mass that best matches our models to the data. So that's my research in a nutshell. I spent the past year writing this program that will do just that. I was able to optimize on this galaxy that we've done before in my group that a paper has just come out on. So if you look up NGC space 3258 black hole mass, you will find a paper written by a former member of my research group and my advisor and the rest of the team. And if you look at that paper, you'll see that we found the black hole, well, not me, I didn't do anything. They found a black hole mass of about 2.2 times 10 to the 9 solar masses. So that's about 2 billion solar masses of a black hole in the center of that galaxy. And they use the carbon monoxide gas swirling around that black hole to make that mass measurement. And so I'm doing essentially the same sort of thing with two other kinds of galaxies, which I will not name, because last time I explained to you that I didn't want to get scooped. And I explained scooping incorrectly last time. Scooping is just like in journalism where someone gets the story out before you do, essentially. So in research, that's if somebody published the result of black hole mass measurements on these two galaxies that I'm working on before I did. That would would be getting scooped for me. So I don't want to get scooped, so I'm working on that. It's been a bit of a challenge. I've had some issues. The minimizing procedure hasn't gone as smoothly as I thought it would, and I have to consider making some adjustments to my modeling code in Python. And the thing is, is like when you do research, you don't necessarily have a proficiency in the thing you're doing at the, at the start of it, essentially, right? I wasn't... A Python programmer coming to graduate school. I didn't learn Python in undergraduate, but here I am writing programs in Python to do this really complicated thing. And that was an experience having to learn Python on the fly as I'm learning all these new concepts about black hole mass measurements that I had never learned before. But it's been a very rewarding experience. I think my programming skills have gone up exponentially, though I still get tripped up on some weird errors now and then. It's just so funny to me how you just start a project in graduate school that you may or may not have a good idea of where to begin. And then somehow along the way, I'm going to use a science term here, like a random walk, right? Or you just randomly walk your way eventually to the right point where you need to be. 
I don't know if anyone else experiences that as a graduate student doing research in a scientific field. That's what I feel. It's like a random walk. You Sometimes it's also called the drunkard's walk. So it's like you imagine a drunk person just walking and it's just a bunch of zigzaggy lines. That's essentially it. You're just taking random steps without really any sort of direction. And then you somehow find the right path. I don't know if that's a great way to explain it, but that's that's my reality at least. I've been randomly walking, randomly finding the right things to do when I need to do it. And now I need to randomly walk myself into the right path again. So... Here's to hopefully finding the right path soon. So I am just so, so excited to just say I'm the first person to try and measure the black hole mass of this one galaxy because I just was thinking about it. When you're doing the research, you don't really necessarily think too hard about the implications of what you're doing. And I sort of sat down not that long ago, and I did that. I thought about the work I was doing. I thought about what it implied. I thought about what it could mean for me. And for me, it it gives me this unique position of being able to say, look, I was the first person to try and estimate the, the mass of this black hole in this galaxy, which, you know, some people may not really care about. And, you know, I understand it's just a very archaic, well, not archaic, but just a very random and niche thing and i understand but to somebody who's really passionate about understanding black holes understanding the dynamics of galaxies how galaxies grow these are all very important questions for those of you who don't know the black hole mass of a galaxy is correlated with a bunch of other parameters of the galaxy so for example the black hole mass is correlated with what is known as the stellar velocity dispersion the way that I like to think about it is that the velocity dispersion, you can sort of think of it as the standard deviation of the velocities of stars along the line of sight. So imagine we're looking at a galaxy, we're looking at a bunch of stars moving around, and we're measuring their mean velocities as they uh, are you know, looked at in observations. And if we look at the standard deviation of those velocities around you know given points, those those uh, stellar velocity dispersions are correlated with how massive the black hole is. So faster stellar, stellar velocity dispersions correlate with a higher black hole mass. Black hole masses are also correlated with the amount of luminosity or the total power emitted from the bulge component of the galaxy. So typically a galaxy will have this bulge-like part and the amount of light essentially or the amount of power, you can imagine like a light bulb rating the amount of power coming towards us is also correlated with how massive that black hole is so to understand how our universe grows how galaxies grow understand these big questions like where did we come from how did the galaxy form how do we distinguish you know ellipticals versus spirals and what are their evolutionary tracks these are all questions that my research field has and to think that i'm going to contribute just even a tiny part of knowledge towards this big goal is just very satisfying to me and i think to a lot of people who do research that's that's sort of what drives them and that's what drives me i i just I'm just thinking wow i'm really pushing the balance here i'm doing stuff that no one has done before and that's just really exciting and i get to do it at a place at uc irvine where i feel very secure i feel very supported by my peers and my advisor and I feel that I have a good future following my graduate career. So that is what 
that's what drives me, I guess. So I didn't mean to get too motivational or inspirational or anything like that if you were inspired. But uh, if you if you were, uh, you're welcome. And if you weren't, then I'm sorry. So that's that. So without further ado, I think that's where I'm going to end this episode. I think this was a lot. We talked about quite a bit of stuff that I think was worth discussing. And I hope that there was a little part of the episode that you found interesting, you found entertaining, and you found worthwhile. So if you did, you know, please leave a comment either on the YouTube video or on the Spotify, the Apple Store, or the Google Play, or sorry, the Google Podcast sections. And I will try and read those comments and see what your feedback is. So thank you for watching and tune in next time.